Welcome back to another episode of Beckett's Babies. I'm Sarah. And I'm Sam. And we are here with a special guest for this episode. That's right. I am pleased to introduce Kristen Idashak. She's a playwright, dramaturg, producer, and educator whose plays have been seen in theaters around the United States and on beaches along the coast of California. She's a two-time Jerome Fellow, former member of the Goodman Playwrights Unit, and the artistic director of Cloudgate Theater. Kristen, welcome to Beckett's Babies. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, So you have a show coming up in July of your play Strange Heart Beating. Um, And I was wondering if we could just start there. Can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration for that play and give listeners a taste of what it's about? Yes, absolutely. So the play actually emerged from a bake-off when Paula Vogel came to do a master class at the Playwright Center when I was when I was uh, living there. And uh, the bake-off was uh, Alita and the Swan bake-off. So we were using uh, as inspiration points the myth of Alita and the Swan, uh, Liz Egloff's play, which I believe is, is called The, the Swan. Swan. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that play. Oh, it's so beautiful. And, uh, and then a couple of other, so then, so then the ingredients were, were like characters of, uh, I mean, I didn't, maybe it wasn't characters, but you had to have two species. Uh, I think there was a window was an ingredient uh, and a household appliance. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh huh. It's all making sense now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, and and so at that moment, uh, I had been living in in the Twin Cities uh, for I had moved there uh, to become a Jerome Fellow, but my partner is from rural Minnesota, and so we had I'd been spending a lot of time in rural Minnesota and and with his family and in his hometown. And, uh, and so as, so, so the, like in the days before I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, I, I, I felt, uh, I, 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 being in that town was, was a really sort of wild experience for me because we would, you know, we would like go to the post office and the, and the postmaster would say to my, to my partner, oh, oh, uh, you're you're Greg Kelly's boy, and <laughs> my, you know, my forty year old, uh, not very boyish partner would be like, yes, yes, I, I am, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and there was something about that world that was really quite uh, quite unlike anything else that I had ever experienced. I I'm a suburban baby myself and then and I've lived in in major urban centers for my entire adult life and then sort of so okay and so the day before this bake-off started literally the day before we we had a a party that was like a an an introduce Kristen to the town party because we had (laughs) we had gotten married uh in in December in Chicago and that you know so a lot of the and I had a very intimate wedding, and so a lot of the the folks from my my husband's small town were not able to make the the journey. So this was like a like a present the bride 
to the town was a sort of wow, how, like a debutante. <laughs> I, I did feel a bit, a bit <laughs> like that. And, and at that party, there were sort of these two moments that had happened, uh, like within an hour of each other. One was was that the uh, a number of the the women at the party were talking about the Jacob Wetterling case oh, yeah. uh, and talking about it uh, like sort of like it had happened yesterday, but also talking about it with a sort of well, there were things we all knew that had just come to that had come to kind of a light, but the sense that we had known. We had known these things all along. Mm-hmm. And Jacob Butterling uh, disappeared when he was about 10 or 11 years old from the town just east of where my partner grew up. Oh, okay. And then in the town just west of where my partner grew up is the Genio processing plant. Oh, and okay. so, so then like 20 minutes later, I'm in the kitchen hiding from the Jacob Butterling talk. And, uh, and, and this family friend who uh, this young woman who who has a has a deep deep love of animals had gone to college for uh, uh, sort of veterinary school and uh, and so and she had just gotten a job at the Genio processing plant and her job was to give the turkeys their antibiotics and then uh-huh. to like go around and collect the dead ones oh my God. in the morning. I mean, there were other parts of the job too, but that the, that was really what wow. stuck out to me, and and sort of her description of sort of going through this industrial barn and and sort of what that experience was, and wow. and she was very matter of fact about it. You know, I think there is something about growing up uh, in and around farms that you know that there's a like a a sort of pragmatic relationship to yeah the cycle of life and how you know domesticated animals fit into that that i i did, do not possess still and well and just the way that the agricultural industry works i mean i think yes many of us who grew up in urban areas have this kind of romanticized um like historical version of what we think that is but yes and i do think that there are, there are elements of that that still Mm-hmm. That still do do feel true to some some parts of life, you know, like like when we go to see my in laws, you know, like my my mother in law knows where the chicken came from, like she yeah. she knew she knew that chicken, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know she she's she's very she's lovely. She'll she'll tell me about how happy the chicken was during its life. And she, you know, uh, she's she's speaking from experience. Uh, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so so all of those things were sort of uh, floating around for me, and then and then I wrote this play in this essentially in in like 48 hours, the first draft of this play. Oh wow! Because all those things were so present in your mind. Well, yes, and that's that's sort of like what the purpose of a bake-off is right is that you essentially you just write as intensively as you can over a a really sort of finite amount of time Mm -hmm. right uh and and you don't really rewrite or edit or really even think too much so the point is to just sort of go to generate as much as you can 
Well, and you're using whatever, like whatever you've been thinking about for, exactly. for the last week. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's kind of like a, a timestamp of your mind at that moment. It really is. That's so interesting. It really is. Although I do think, you know, it was sort of both a combination of what sort of what I had experienced the day before and then sort of what I had been grappling with, like within a month of, of dating my husband, uh, he, he like took me to the Minnesota state fair. I'd never been to a state fair. We were living in Chicago at the time. We, we drove to Minnesota. I like got to, I got to meet some cows <laughs> and, uh, and there's this amazing feature of the state fair there. There are these butter princesses and they sculpt, they sculpt the, these, these young women from around the state out of giant pieces of butter. They're like larger than life size. They're like, they're like maybe two or three times life size. And they're based uh, on like actual oh, they're portraits. Yes. Oh, wow. so... yeah, actually, and you can go and you can watch them. Wow. Uh, you can watch them. They do the sculpting during the, during the course of the fair. So, you know, whatever one they're working on that day, you know, she'll be sitting in the, sort of refrigerated area and the sculptor will be sort of carving her out of butter. So in some ways, you know, I had been thinking and then and then so and then and then like the next thing that happened was then we went out into into central Minnesota and I got my first taste of this uh, <laughs> of this totally this totally brand new world that also was like right next to to where I was from. You know, I'm I'm also I'm from the Midwest. So in some ways I've been thinking about it for mm-hmm. you know six years. And, you know, and I had never, I was never, I wasn't out with his family, although, you know, sort of, um, adorably sort of years later, I, I was like, oh, they, they had known the whole time. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and like told me in this sort of very sideways way. You're, when you were talking about Bake Off, um, when you were writing, yeah. I'm so curious to know, I'm always curious about playwrights and when they first, when they started to write, do you, do you write First, like, are you organized for, for your rest of your plays? Like, do you organize no. first or do you, or you jump in and you just write uh, oh, from that visceral know, place? Funny. Yeah. I, my knee-jerk reaction was I, I do not plan. <laughs> uh, but I, I actually, I, I have a sort of large asterisk mm-hmm. next to that, which is that I, I tend to think a lot about structure and I think about structure more than story. So often I'll enter a play with a, with a structure, but I don't know what happens within that structure. And I'll mm-hmm. sort of, cho- you know, I'll sort of have, I'll know a little bit about the story and I'll, and I'll sort of try out a f- just uh, sort of uh, just in my head. I don't even really put it on paper, but I'll really try to do the, the mental exercise of, okay, what would this play look like as a three act epic? What would this play look like as a one person show, what would this play look like in a five act sort of Shakespearean associative form? And then I'll, I'll pick the one that, that I think had, that I, I sort of have a hunch has the most mileage for that particular story. And then I'll, I'll sort of run with it. And then I'll, I'll sort of figure out how form and content are, are interacting as I go along. Cool. Do you, so let's talk about yeah. You're writing rituals and practices. Like, do you, when you write a first draft, is it on the computer? Is it on paper? Do you go back and forth? I, no, I, I pretty much always type, although I'll take notes. I have a notebook for every play. I'll keep notes 
usually pretty sparse notes. And then, and then I'll actually, I'll keep that notebook through readings and workshops uh-huh. and rehearsals. And so that it'll sort of go with that play for its entire life. But then I'll, I'll really, I, I type everything and then, and then I will print it out. And then, you know, sort of like a, a month or a few months or as long as I can get away from the play, I'll do rewriting based on the hard copy that I printed out. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like you're looking at the hard copy and then you're typing. Yeah, like I can see it more clearly when yeah. it's when I'm staring at a at a piece of paper. I can see things yeah, that I, I can't find see that on a too. Screen. And I and I don't really know what it is, but it's like I can kind of hold it in my mind more effectively if I'm looking at a printed mm-hmm. copy of it. What I like to do is I once I print it out and if the play is by scenes, then I mm-hmm. I staple each scene and I just like lay it on the ground like and just see and I'm like okay and kind of work scene by scene because I I think I'm also it took me a while to realize like oh I'm a visual person that I need to physically see where it how it's all laid out how it looks to me and like oh Mm -hmm. this this scene is really light here oh this scene is really thick here you know like I'm like yeah totally so that's kind of what I've noticed um when I approached my writing it's like oh, I'd like I to get that. you know really physical with it oh that's cool I'm gonna steal that idea to like group it by scenes like that I also love that I think a lot of times I will I'll sort of uh I'm I don't always know what order the scenes go in mm-hmm. and and I love that idea too because that gives you the opportunity to sort of shuffle them around mm-hmm. like it's a you know like it's a deck of cards what about other rituals like do you do you drink tea do you have to be in a certain room is it like wherever you are, if you have an idea, you just pull out your laptop and start writing? You know, I, uh, it's so funny. I, 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 I was told very early on in my life as a, as a writer that, uh, you know, that, that, a, that a writer is someone who, if you have 20 minutes, if you, would, if you have a pocket of 20 minutes uh, and you can choose between going to get a cup of coffee and writing for 20 minutes the, the real writer chooses sitting down and writing <laughs> uh-huh <laughs> um which you know I think by that measure I, I would say I'm about I'm a real writer like maybe 50 percent of the time <laughs> uh, yeah. but I, I I will say you know I I find myself I I do think I'm an opportunistic writer I will I really will sit down and and make things work when I, whenever I have to, you know, I, I have more than once like been on the bus on my way to rehearsal mm-hmm. <laughs> with my pages spread out on the seat next to me and like on my leg underneath the laptop. And like, you know, I'm, I'm like desperately hoping that the bus stays empty enough that I can occupy two seats <laughs> <laughs> so that I can get work done. I, you know, yeah, I feel like I, I often, I often find myself writing, I think like like many of us, right, uh, on a deadline for a deadline. I, I think I do have a set of ideal conditions, but I almost never write in them. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, it's true. Deadlines are just, I don't know what any of us would do without them. <laughs> mm-hmm. they're, they're so helpful. They are. And, and I think I, I've had a lot of them 
lately. And so they're helpful. And also they're the, the mother of necessity. That's, a, that's not the right <laughs> metaphor, but you know what I mean? Like, um, Kristen, who are your artistic influences? Like who, whose plays do you admire? Do you have favorite playwrights? Oh yeah. I, I mean, I, I would say I, I try to read and see things as broadly as I can, because I find that I, I just, I feel like for me, absorbing as much as I possibly can is, is the, you know, is the most important thing. And I think Sam, you actually said it a moment ago before we, we started recording that, that like finding inspiration, which, and I think finding inspiration and, and finding influence for me or experiencing influence are really, are really similar feelings. And, mm-hmm. and so I feel like I'm just, I'm just trying to constantly sop up everything I can. So yeah, you know, I, I say, I would say that I, I, I've read a lot of, no, this is, these aren't playwrights, but I've spent a lot of time reading hardball detective fiction. <laughs> cool. Any favorites? Do you have any favorite titles or things you've read recently? I actually, I've actually started tracking what I read because I read so much. And I, I finally, I was like, I, I would like to just have a, a written list. Uh, I've been reading a lot of N.K. Jemisin lately. She is not a, a hardboiled detective writer at all. She is sci-fi writer working in, not entirely, but working uh, largely in Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. So that's been, that, uh, that's been on my list. Um, I've been reading. I'm I, a lot of what I read is is research. I'm writing a play about tidying and mass extinction right now. So, I've been reading uh, the Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert, sort of on repeat. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh! <laughs> Wait, did you watch the entire Tidying Up with Marie? No, I, I tried to, uh-huh. and then I I found it distressing, and <laughs> I had to stop watching it. And I that think was supposed to be soothing. Yeah, I know. Well, that was why I realized I, I had to write a play about it because instead of being soothed, I found myself really, really stressed out. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I really, and not to be glib, but I, I, I was really uh, upset about the fact that, that this is supposed to be sort of an antidote to sort of consumer culture, right? That we're supposed to, we're, we're liberated by reducing the amount of things we have, but, but there is no space in that show or in in her work to really address sort of what is the the root like what's the mm-hmm. what's the hole we're trying to fill yeah by yeah. acquiring all that stuff in the first place yeah where and, does it uh, come from yeah mm-hmm. and, and and you know what what is that impulse and and why what is the sort of the yeah what's the emptiness what's the what's the wound and and why are we why are we uh how, how do we how do we get here in the first place? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think that there's also, you know, early on in one of the episodes I watched, there was a a mother who was sort of talking about how she sort of saw her value as a as a wife and a mother and a woman uh, reflected in how clean her house was. Mm-hmm. And I also <laughs> wanted the I, I wanted the show to have space for really trying to investigate what what that was mm. right yeah. well right because then if you if you let go of the stuff and the I mean then what then what are you going to attach your self-worth to absolutely yeah, like, and, yeah and what's so interesting about the show especially women is they associate 
this minimal cleanliness as feminine. And so they're like, I, I want my place to be more girly. How do I make it girly? And, and then Marie Kondo, I just remember one of the episodes, she's like looking at her, like, when they say girl, like, I try to understand what that means. <laughs> it's just like, it's, but it's just, it's so interesting our, the, how society, we perceive that, you know? It really and is. So. It is. And I do, I do want to say, I, I am, I'm a big fan of Marie Kondo. I love her, <laughs> love her work. She is she's a major influence for sure. <laughs> well, and so Kristen, you said this play is also about mass extinction. Uh-huh. I'm wondering uh, it seems oh, like a lot yeah. of your, seems like a lot of your work is about <laughs> environmental issues and um you know, climate change, but then you you have this special talent for linking them to like other issues that maybe seem <laughs> more approachable or mm. at least more immediate. So is that something you do intentionally? Like, where does that come from? Are you like, oh, I'm going to pick something really horrible and overwhelming <laughs> and <combine it> like <laughs> cleaning your house, which I mean, yeah. some people it's the same feeling. <laughs> Got kind of actually. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, so, so I, I I did this. I think I I think the first time I really really did that was with this play called The Surest Poison, which is not about climate change, but it is about forensic toxicology. And more than that, it's a it's a play about how the government was systematically poisoning uh, alcohol during prohibition that they knew were going to go to uh, immigrant communities, the working poor, people of color, and uh, intentionally making making this alcohol as deadly as possible. And so it it was I knew that that was going to be a really huge sort of um sort sort of like monolithic system of oppression that was going to be present in the play and that there wasn't really because it's a, a based on historical events there there isn't there wasn't really a, a satisfying resolution that my characters are going to be able to, to be like, oh, yes, we've, you know, we've really confronted this problem and we have emerged triumphant. Right. Uh, and so, uh, so this, this is where my, my decades of uh, hard-boiled uh, detective fiction reading comes in. Uh, I was like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just um, tell that story in the guise of a, of like a, a sort of fun murder mystery. <laughs> uh, and so, so it's, it's got a little bit of like the, the thin man, highly stylized, you know, rat-a-tat-tat rapport between the, the two sort of the co-protagonists and that, and then like actually as we go through this journey of the two of them navigating the, you know, the, the nightlife of, New York during the Nobel experiment, mm-hmm. we, we actually discover that that there's this sort of huge issue that's going on, and that the play is actually about that much bigger thing. But yeah, so but then you get the satisfaction of the murder mystery, even yeah. if you don't get the satisfaction of solving like institutional racism and exactly, exactly, and xenophobia, yeah. and, yeah, and yeah. you know, there's a. Um, there's a quote from uh, this Barbara Kingsolver novel 
I love her. I do too. Uh, and, and I read, I was assigned in, in high school to read the Poisoned Bible and, and it has one of my all time favorite lines of literature and, and it, uh, and it goes something like, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but, uh, this woman says Rome was burning, but I had just enough water to scrub the floor. So I did what I could. Mm. Uh, wow. And so I think, uh, I think a lot of times in, in my work, I am trying to figure out what is the bucket of water that I have to work with. Uh, even though what I really want to be writing about is Rome burning. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think with climate change in particular, I think for me, one of the things that I find to be particularly hard to wrap my mind around is, is just the magnitude of the issue. And, and I don't really know how to write about, I don't know how to write about climate change sort of like capital C, capital C, right? Like it's overwhelming and you know, it like I, I just shut down when I when I try to think about it as a whole. And so, you know, so I so I really try to break it down into how, what are ways that I can find into this into this story or into elements of the story that that really make it make it comprehensible. No, I, and I think that's why it's so necessary to tell these kinds of stories because they allow us to process the overwhelming ideas in a way that feels like we're just solving a murder mystery. <laughs> you know, no, we're just cleaning our house, right? right? We're like, just cleaning our house. We're just yeah, tidying up. Just tidying up. <laughs> well, cool. Well, so Kristen, we just have a couple minutes left, but um, you started a theater company called Cloudgate Theater, and I want to know what that's like. So how old is it now, Cloudgate Theater? Uh, well, so we're, uh, we're about a year old, a little bit more. Oh, happy birthday. Thanks. I guess it's like, it's sort of our half birthday or it's about a year and a half. We we work on a project-based model instead of a a season model. Uh, so, so we're in pre-production for Strange Heart Beating, which will be our second production. Project, what, can you uh, explain the difference between that, the project-based model versus, um, season model? Yeah. So the season model says we're going to do three plays or five plays or 17 plays this season, (laughs) Mm. Uh, you know, Um, and, and every, every year, no matter what we will, you will, you know, that you will always be able to see three or five or 17 plays at our theater company. Right. Mm. And maybe there's some variation in there, but, but for the most part, that's what you know you can expect from us. And, you know, you may or may not be able to become a subscriber. You know, we, we may have, you know, maybe we're really hip and instead we have like a, a membership program that's like we're trying to figure out how to, how to turn, how to turn sort of a subscription model into something that younger audience members can, can actually get excited about and, and utilize. Mm-hmm. So a project-based model basically says we are going to produce one project at a time and we're going to do that on our own timeline and do like the fundraising and the planning just for that one show absolutely you know and i think there are are companies that that work on project-based models that might have a couple of plays Mm -hmm. sort of in their repertory that you know that are going at one time you know i I think about you know the team as an example of of um a company that 
might have a couple of things going on, but they're not going to offer you, you know, a five show season. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that that allows us to do is just be, be more sort of mindful about making work that's sustainable for the artists we work with. And that's something that's really, really important for us. We, you know, we started the company for, for two reasons. You know, there was an aesthetic impulse, of course, that, you know, we wanted to make work that felt non-naturalistic, that felt like it had room for some formal and aesthetic experimentation. Mm-hmm. But I think equally important was that we wanted to create an experience for our collaborators that really centered their needs as artists and as humans, and that really sort of took into account what the lived experience of being a theater artist is and the strain that that can put on the people making the work. Yeah. And so that's so beautiful. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so we really, you know, believe that for us, the people are more important than the art, which, which actually is not how I was trained to think about. Yeah. That's a radical (laughs) concept. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And it was I mean, the idea really... is like the artists will die, but their art will live on. You know? Right, the show must go on. Right, like we're like that. It's like we're so conditioned to believe that the show must go on, and the show is the most important thing. And you know, I would say that it's not that we don't care about making art that that achieves, you know, a certain you know a level of excellence. But I think we actually believe that if you start by saying, what are, the, what are the people need to be taken care of? We actually really believe that if we start by, by taking care of our artists, that, they, that, that we all together will make the best work that we can make because we're being taken care of on a holistic level. Beautiful. I love that. So where can people catch your show? Where and when can they catch this Cloudgate Theater production. <laughs> so we will be back in force uh, July 9th uh, at the Frontier, which is right off the Thorndale stop in Chicago's Edgewater neighborhood. Um, so as we're coming to an end, uh, do you have any advice for playwrights that are just starting out? Uh, any writing advice that you might have for them? I would say that you know, I don't know that this advice is right for everyone, but something that that uh, I think really has has been important to me is to invite the audience into my uh, into my heart early on in the process. I mean, I don't actually even mean like, and I say heart because I don't mean like putting pages that I wrote five minutes ago up in front of, front of an audience. But I, I do think that for me, I think a lot about how the audience lives in relationship with with the work because because I'm trying to always make sure that I'm I'm creating a live event while I'm writing. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think whether that audience is, you know, a, a cast of thousands or mm-hmm. whether it's you know your your mom or your partner or you know, your friend thinking about how how your work is is uh, inviting uh, inviting people to come into into relationship with with the work and with each other through experiencing the work. 
Beautiful. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. So uh, this is the our favorite part. Glisten. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Uh, Sam, you want to start us off? Sure. Um, so I read an article by a writer named Ferris Jabber. Um, it's in this month's Harper's Magazine, and I just read it yesterday, and it's about – it's called The Story of Storytelling, and it's about the history of um, folk tales and stories that we all know, like Little Red Riding Hood. And mm. he, he talks about a lot of things, like um, he talks about these researchers who have used this computerized model to show that many of these folk tales that we thought were a few hundred years old are actually – descended from stories that are thousands of years old, um, which is pretty amazing. But but one of the things that he said that I've been thinking about is that he said a story is a way that, the, that we think. It's like a vehicle for the human brain to think more clearly, um, that we come up with stories to approach things we might encounter in real life and kind of work out possibilities. So I thought that was really beautiful. Uh, do you have a link to that? Um, I will find it for you. I read it on paper. I know this oh, is kind okay. of radical, but I read it on like an actual okay. physical well, if there's paper a, magazine. If there's a link, we'll share it to our listeners. Listeners, look out okay. for it. What about you, Sarah? My glisten is Whitney Houston. I <laughs> saw this really tragic, documentary called Whitney on Hulu with my boyfriend and fiance oh fiance what was that word sorry fiance <laughs> we could not stop. we we just could not stop thinking about her life we just mm-hmm. could not her life was so tragic it's a it's a a greek tragedy like it was such a um to see this how she started her life as this young beautiful talented uber talented woman mm. and it the documentary re- what it really showed is sort of how people her family friends even the, the world we all like took advantage of that and just kind of stripped it away from her and it's just it i mean she obviously made her own choices too but it was it I just could not stop thinking about it. My 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 fiance and I would just be eating dinner. We would be, you know, you know, just doing our own thing. All of a sudden, we would just like remark, like wow, Whitney, Whitney, right? Like that. What a life! What man? Her life was so crazy. Like, how mm. does she? Is it was it was tormenting. So if you're the type of person that uh, can't get over things, I don't know. Like, can't <laughs> don't watch this documentary because it'll torment you for days. What's it called? It's called Whitney. Okay. And the filmmaker is Kevin McDonald. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll check it out. Mm. No, don't, Sam. The whole point is no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We've been warned, listeners. (laughs) Okay. Uh, so, So I started listening to this week a podcast called Mothers of Invention, and it's it's co-hosted by... Uh, the former Irish president, Mary Robinson, and uh, a woman named Maeve Higgins, who is a comedian. She's also uh, Irish, although she's living in New York now. And it is a a podcast about how uh, climate change uh, intersects with feminist issues and how uh, issues of climate change uh, 
disproportionately affect women and and especially women of the global south and it is it's rad that sounds amazing yeah it's it's called mothers Mothers of invention invention want to check that out yeah and it's also they have this like a really sort of um like lovely intergenerational rapport going on the the, these two hosts Mm -hmm. uh because one of the you know may of the comedian was, was like nine when Mary Robinson was the president, was her president. <laughs> That's so <It's> wild. <laughs> and they're so smart and thoughtful. And uh, they made me excited about uh, like climate legislation in a way that I actually didn't think that legislation was something that I was an aspect of, of that issue that I cared about. And uh, now I do. Well, it seems that we've reached the end of another episode. Thank you both so much for having me. It's really been a delight. Thank you, Kristen. It was wonderful talking to you. Um, Do you have a website that you'd like to Yeah, where can people find you? Yeah, they can find me at kristenidashak.com and they can find uh, Cloudgate at cloudgatetheater.com. And that's theater with With an an R-E. Okay. Awesome. And we'll make sure to link that out for our listeners. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kristen, and thank you, listeners. Um, And I guess we'll say goodbye. Bye. All right. So that was our interview with Kristen E. Dashak. That was remarkable. She's such a wonderful human being. I really enjoyed um, her insight into her process. And every writer is so different again, you know? Yeah. I loved what she had to say about her company and how they – they, that they center the wellness of their collaborators and their artists and that that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. I just think, I, you know, it seems like a really unusual and <laughs> radical approach, but it shouldn't be. So listeners, love to hear your thoughts, your two cents as always, um, and about what you guys are all up to. Are you guys all writing I hope you are. All right. Yeah, I've I've been writing. I I, I told Sam that uh, working on this podcast has just been a huge inspiration. Um, I just feel always excited to return to my plays and just start writing and working again. I'm gonna yeah. take your idea of stapling scenes together. I think that's really cool. Yeah, but if you're that playwright that writes forty page uh, scene. Uh, get a a fat stapler yeah you're gonna need some big staples (laughs) yeah you're gonna need some big staples or maybe binder clips yeah right that's probably true (laughs) all right guys until next time thanks for joining us and always please follow us on social we're at beckett's babies and share uh our podcast to your friends who are interested playwrights and playwriting okay thanks guys see you next week